Hey everyone, it's Brian. Just a quick note that we've just released the new book, Soil and Roots, Cultivating Deep Discipleship. It's been in the works for about a year now. It's a great, easy-to-read overview of deep discipleship and our journey to become more like Jesus. It covers the great omission, the three primary problems, and the joys of being in a greenhouse. We'll have something up on the website soon, but you can find it right now on Amazon by just searching for my name and the title, Soil and Roots. You can grab it in paperback or in digital format. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, here's the episode. Soil and Roots podcast, journeying together into deep discipleship. I'm Brian Fisher. This is episode 82, Confessions of a Deconstructing Lifelong Christian. Today's episode is an extension of our exploration into one characteristic of a deep disciple we call releasing control. Someone who is being formed to love more like Jesus gives up more and more of our tendencies to try to figure everything out or determine the outcome of everything by taking control. Our hearts gradually soften and relax as we learn to trust more. But this trust is not just mental assent. Our entire being trusts God, just as our entire being trusted our caregivers when we were toddlers. When you and I were kids, we probably didn't stress too much. We trusted that our parents would be around, that they would provide for us, that they had our best interests at heart, We probably didn't even think about it. We existed in the reality that our caregivers could be trusted if we grew up in a healthy home. We knew it. We knew it in our hearts and in our guts unconsciously. But unfortunately for many of us, our embodied willingness to trust God and others and even ourselves becomes damaged and broken along the way. We make mistakes. That breaks trust. Others make mistakes. That breaks trust. God allows events in our lives that we don't like, we don't understand, and our trust begins to erode. It becomes more difficult for us to just rest. So we begin to overanalyze and attempt to control things we can't possibly control. We read in Isaiah 26 that the steadfast of mine you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. And we think, yeah, right, perfect peace. We can return to that childlike state where we trust God with our entire being, where we wake up in the morning and trust in the reality that whatever happens that day is caused by or allowed by God, and so we're safe, where we release our need to figure everything out or to control people or circumstances. However, this journey into deeper discipleship and greater freedom always comes with a cost. And it almost always involves some painful introspection and, yes, deconstruction. For Jessica and me, our careers and family life haven't always turned out the way we originally thought. I joke that I'm a recovering corporate executive. I was recruited into the financial services sector in my 20s and really enjoyed most of my time there. I eventually spent some wonderful years in the media and the marketing worlds. Half my career has been spent leading a few different Christian nonprofits and the other half in the for-profit world. I've been a company of one, 
and I've managed as many as 175 people. I've attempted to start a few things from scratch, and I've stewarded budgets as high as $38 million. I've never done the big box company thing, but I did find a sweet spot in small to mid-sized organizations. Our family has experienced some very high highs and some very low lows. I've enjoyed some corporate success, and I've also had my fair share of failures. I've made some great decisions, and I've made some terrible decisions. I've worked with some amazing people, and I've worked with some duplicitous and underhanded people, most of whom claim to follow Jesus. There were times when I treated people compassionately, fairly, and kindly, and sometimes when I didn't. There were times when I was treated compassionately, fairly, and kindly, and sometimes when I wasn't. I'm supposedly right now in the middle of my peak earning years, but that certainly isn't my present reality. Most of the career dreams and aspirations I had in my 20s have evaporated, and to some extent, that's a good thing. When I was a younger man, I imagined I'd help change the world, initially through music, then through business, then through Christian ministry. I worked long, hard hours on this Christianized version of the American dream. I bought into it, and I sold it. There's always a darker side to wanting to change the world, and we've experienced the dingy shadows of institutions and others, and sometimes ourselves, along the way. Most of my career was spent in workplaces where Christianity was accepted, if not promoted. I've worked with some amazing, wonderful people. However, I realized after a while, with some amount of skepticism, that there really wasn't much difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, at least in the environments I worked in or even created. There were just as many affairs, schemes, deceptions, and power struggles in the quote-unquote Christian organizations I served compared to the ones that didn't carry the label. It didn't really matter if it was a church, a Christian nonprofit, a media company, or a financial firm. It's been difficult not to become cynical. Some days I lose that battle. When we were newly married and dreaming about a family, we tended to function from a set of assumptions and expectations about how life is going to go. I think that's pretty normal. We're going to have a boy and a girl, and they're going to grow up with loads of friends, both be valedictorians, star in school plays, and excel at sports, and go on to become doctors or lawyers. Well, we have two boys, young men now. Hopefully we'll have a girl in our family tree somewhere down the road. Our oldest son loathed high school and went straight into the workforce after graduation. Our youngest tried college for a year, but it wasn't for him either. Yet, they now live together with some great friends in a rented house. They follow and love Jesus and have formed a community of like-hearted guys. And they're figuring out this whole adulting thing. They live ten minutes away, and we see them pretty often, especially when Jessica cooks. I'm so proud of the men they're becoming, even if their past doesn't look much like what I originally thought it should. Our marriage turned out better than we expected. It's not that we expected it to fail. It's had its ups and downs like anyone else, but the depth and the breadth of what we've experienced together has just been far beyond what we even knew existed back when we said I do. Growing up, I figured I'd form some friendships in high school and college that would last for the rest of my life. How many TV shows feature lifelong friendships that stay in the test of time? At least for me, these types of friendships have been elusive. Moving to three different states hasn't helped, though it seems that most of my friendships were built on the convenience of being at work or church together. If those environments changed, so did the friendships. I suspect I'm just a victim of the transient nature of our society and perhaps a general shallowness caused by our crazy schedules, 
Though I confess, I've often wondered if there's just something fundamentally wrong with me. My first church experience came when I was six years old. I started my spiritual journey in a small Missouri Synod Lutheran church up in Pennsylvania. Lots of liturgy, high church music, symbolism, structure. Our family moved to a Methodist church sometime later, which turned charismatic. That's an interesting story. My late teen years were spent in a large Assemblies of God congregation. I went to college in western Pennsylvania, met Jessica, and we attended a mainline Presbyterian church for our time there, primarily because it was across the street from campus and we were too tired and lazy to drive anywhere else. After Jess and I were married, we settled in Pittsburgh and attended a popular non-denominational Bible church for about a decade that desperately wanted to become a multi-site megachurch. In that effort, they were successful. But it was there I first started to question the role and impact of the institutional church, especially one that was so intent on generating lots of exciting but impersonal numbers. It had all the allure of the popular, seeker-friendly Willow Creek model, yet struggled with the power, money, and control issues that inevitably come with something attempting to be a large system. I couldn't put it into words at the time, but I think I began to wonder if that type of model was more about the industry of Christianity versus the heart of it. I was a church musician for many years, so I participated in concerts and services in just about every type of context you can imagine. Catholic Mass, all of the mainline denominations, highly liturgical events, black Baptist marathon services, services with pipe organs, and services with women running around barefoot waving flags while others were slain in the spirit. I haven't seen everything in modern Christianity, but I've seen a lot. In 2006, we moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I was hired to run a large international media nonprofit. The ministry was associated with another large church. In fact, one of the first mega churches in the country. The founder, though, died a year into my tenure, and the power vacuum caused by his death sent most of that ecosystem into a tailspin, drastically shrinking the ministry and almost destroying the church. A few years later, we moved to Texas and helped to plant a small church in the Dallas area. We spent a decade there. Yet my angst about the role and purpose of the modern church remained. Eventually, we moved to a supposedly non-denominational church that desperately tries to hide the fact it's Baptist, but it's Baptist. We were there for several years and realized, probably too late, that although we had served, gotten involved, we had developed no real friendships, and the church was having little to no impact on our spiritual formation. Senior leadership desperately wants their institution to be a megachurch, and it looks like they're succeeding, and they evaluate how God is moving solely based on the number of conversions and baptisms they generate, numbers which are shared virtually every week from the pulpit. So here we sit in our early 50s as new empty nesters in an area that has a church on every corner with no idea what to do or where to go. This isn't how I thought things would end up. A friend sent me a YouTube video of Carrie Newhoff interviewing a writer named John Mark Comer. Newhoff has built a pretty large social media platform where he visits and chats with key Christian leaders. Comer is one of the up-and-coming IT speakers and writers in the spiritual formation movement. He's a former megachurch pastor who has done a whole lot more thinking about the modern church than I have. I've linked to their conversation on the blog if you want to check it out. Comer reminds me of another very popular Christian writer and speaker, Lisa Turkhurst. They're both brutally, if not uncomfortably, transparent and vulnerable in their books and public appearances. 
Growing up in an age of spotless and perfected Christian evangelical people on TV, these two sometimes feel like welcome breaths of fresh air. For no other reason than I can relate to their faults and failures better than the perfectly timed jokes and polished bullet points of normal Christian media. They talk about their faults, their sins, their bad decisions, their wounds, their therapists, and their current joys. They paint a picture of the world as it is, rather than how we feel pressured it should be. There's a section of the conversation between Carrie Newhoff and John Mark Comer called Why Church is Underwhelming. Well, that pretty much sums up where I'm at, so I watched the video with some interest. Comer ties in his comments with the six stages of spiritual formation that we've explored in some detail here. It's from the book The Critical Journey. Apparently, we're all reading the same stuff. Look, The Critical Journey is theory. It's not something to be taken as gospel truth. It's just a way to envision our journey into deep discipleship. It's not perfect, nor is it prescriptive. But as a review, here are the six stages. Stage one, awareness of God. Stage two, learning about him. Stage three, a productive life. Stage four, the journey inward, and that includes the wall. Stage five is the journey outward, and stage six is a life of love. Now, we've mentioned before that the modern church may be very helpful and intentional about guiding us into those first three stages. But in most cases, that's where the journey stops. Now, here's the good news. For those of us in the first three stages, the modern church can be wonderful. It's educational, inspirational, instructional. It's formative. Here's the bad news. For those of us who hit stage four on the wall, the modern church provides little to no help, guidance, support, or, frankly, community. In fact, it may now contribute to some sort of deconstruction in the hearts of those facing the wall. This word, deconstruction, has become popular over the last few years, though it means different things to different people. John Bloom does a nice job tracing the history and usage of the word, and I've linked to his article on the blog. To some, it means leaving a faith system altogether. If someone claims they have deconstructed from Christianity, it means that they no longer hold to the normal set of Christian beliefs, and nor do they follow Jesus. Several high-profile celebrity Christian pastors, musicians, and speakers have completely left the faith over the past several years. They've deconstructed. Sometimes people just deconstruct from a theological system, such as Reformed theology or dispensationalism. They remain Christian, but they leave a certain approach to reading and interpreting the Bible. And others, it simply means the breaking down of some formerly held truths or assumptions in the hopes that whatever is reconstructed is a better mousetrap. Now I'm summarizing, but here's what John Mark Comer talks about in the interview about deconstruction and the modern church. In most church settings, the first three phases look like this. We evangelize and introduce people to God, we educate them about God, and then we invite them into leadership small group leader, missions trip coordinator, elder, deacon, whatever. That's where the work and vision of most churches, however, stop. Stages 1, 2, and 3. Comer comments bluntly that, for people who've been sitting in church for years and have heard the same sermon series a dozen times, church is simply boring. Now, the legalists will immediately jump up and claim that we don't go to church to be served, but to serve. It's not about what we get from it, but what we put into it. Okay, those people can pipe down because legalists have no concept of stage four in the inward journey or the wall. Otherwise, they would no longer be legalists. At the point where we consciously or unconsciously conclude that the modern church institution no longer guides or helps us in our journey, 
what are we supposed to do? And what if that conclusion comes at a time when we're facing a wall, a theological crisis, a death, a broken dream or desire, an unmet expectation of God, others, or even ourselves? Well, chances are something in our hearts starts to deconstruct. Now, out of guilt or a sense of responsibility, we may just soldier on at the same path in our churches, even while our hearts steadily sink into doubt, listlessness, or despair. We become the embodiment of the rule follower. We go through the motions because, well, that's what good Christians do. Even while we fall farther and farther from the abundant life the Bible so ardently promises. Maybe we change churches, or we try a different model. We move from a mega church to a home church, or vice versa. Or maybe we change denominations. Or in some cases, our hearts conclude that the doubts, confusions, isolation, and loneliness caused by the wall won't be healed or resolved, at least not in church, and we give up on the faith altogether. We go find some community, any community, that reignites our passion for life and people. In other words, we head back to the energy and fire of stage one just in some other ecosystem, including ecosystems that bear little resemblance to our communities of faith. Our new communities may even be opposed to our original Christian communities. Most of this happens unconsciously, and it actually rarely has anything to do with our surface belief systems. But some type of deconstruction happens in hearts all the time, especially in our disconnected age. And it's happening in my heart right now. Stage four and the wall have been my home for a few years. Candidly, I don't want to be here. I've bounced up against it a few times earlier in my life, and I successfully avoided it and fled back to stage three. Stage three feels safe, primarily because ignorance is bliss. There's a risk of getting stuck in stage four. The journey inward is necessary, and we often come back to it over and over, but it's not a place to make a permanent home. The wall and the inward journey, stage four, involve some sort of deconstruction. In my case, it's brought up new doubts and questions about myself, my relationships, and the role and purpose of modern church institutions. If the church is well-equipped and excellent at guiding some through stages one to three, that's fantastic. But what about the rest of us? And by the rest of us, I mean all of us who eventually come up against the wall. On this podcast, I've openly questioned the assumption that a half-hour weekly sermon is the primary formative event of the week. That is, without question, the underlying idea of modern Protestantism. It's woven into the fabric and culture of our churches. That was my assumption for a few decades. It no longer is. I'm fairly certain a weekly sermon is wonderful for someone in stages one to three, but provides little to no formation for someone in later stages. What about the assumption that gathering together for an hour a week with strangers, or people we probably won't have much contact with the rest of the week, somehow qualifies is what Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 is referring to. Is that the type of gathering together, the type of community the writer assumed when he penned the words? I no longer think so. On and off for years, I read and studied opposing views of baptism, infant or adult. Here's what I've concluded. I no longer care. I care very much about baptism, but I find the debate no longer worth having. Modern worship music or hymns? I'm comfortable with either, so let's move on. The late Tim Keller was a supporter of what he referred to as a citywide Christian ecosystem. Every major city needs a few megachurches, lots of mid-sized and small churches, parachurch organizations, and other Christian efforts. 
Well, having spent half of my life so far in mega churches or churches desperately trying to become one, I can't agree with them. I've deconstructed on mega churches, particularly as I've studied and taught on deep discipleship, because it requires extraordinary attention on the individual, something a mega church can't possibly value more than its need for growth and the engine necessary to support its expensive operations. I don't know which stage of your journey you're in, and this isn't a race. If you're working your way in the first few stages and your church is central and important to your family and your spiritual formation, that's awesome. It's fantastic. And I mean it. You're exactly where you should be, and you're in great hands. It's just not where I am, and my guess is that's not where a lot of people are. Maybe it just comes with the angst of being middle-aged and all of the changes that brings. We're new empty nesters. Our career lives have been anything but predictable. My body, it continues to disappoint me. We're unsure what to do about church. Thank God for our greenhouse. Life just isn't simple. The Christian life certainly isn't simple. Anyone who tells you otherwise is just selling something even if it's wrapped up in Christianese. I actually know far less now than I did when I was 25. I'm far less certain of things now than when I was 25. Part of this mysterious journey inward involves asking ourselves who God really is and who we really are. As a lifelong Christian and church attender, as an executive who led and ran nonprofit and for-profit organizations, as a husband, the best friend I could ever ask for, as a father to two young men being spiritually formed, who am I? I'm a man slowly, so slowly, being formed into someone who doesn't need to know everything and doesn't need to control everything. Who am I? I'm Eustace Scrub. Eustace is the cousin of Lucy and Edmund Pevensey and finds himself on a mystical and transformative journey with them aboard the Dawn Treader a boat belonging to King Caspian in the land of Narnia. He's an impertinent and selfish young man, and he uses manipulation and arrogance to control the world around him to his benefit. At one point on the journey, Eustace wanders off alone on an island, only to discover the dark cave of a dead dragon. Inside, he finds all manner of treasure, including a wonderful bracelet, which he slips loosely onto his arm, only then to fall into a deep sleep. Hours later, he awakens to discover that he is transformed into a dragon himself, and the loose-fitting bracelet now digs painfully into his much bigger limb. He is beyond miserable as he slowly realizes his fate. As you might imagine, his cousins and fellow travelers initially think he's a great danger and fear his presence, but Eustace is eventually able to convince him that he, the dragon, is actually their ill-tempered and controlling companion. They come to accept him, and Eustace, the dragon, begins his new life as a beast on the outside, while his heart begins a different kind of transformation. One night, a strange and fearful lion comes to him, and Eustace has the sense that he should start undressing, meaning he should try to peel his dragon scales from his body. He does just that, but his efforts are not nearly enough to shed his armor-like plating. Well, let's let Eustace continue the story. Quote, Then the lion said, but I don't know if he spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked at a scab of a sore place, 
It hurts like Billy. Oh, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't much like that, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. End quote. One of the points John Mark Comer makes is that as we grow into deeper discipleship, Jesus forms us at deeper levels. When we first choose to follow him, perhaps we're convicted of swearing or not giving enough at church. When we've walked with him for a long time and we allow him into the deeper strata of our hearts, he digs into our genuine desires, our deeper sins, our hidden and unconscious ideas. He starts to peel away at our need to know more than what's good for us. He starts to peel away at our frenetic pace, perhaps by allowing illness or physical impairment. He starts to peel away at our hidden ideas of performance, perhaps by allowing us to wander in the wilderness for far longer than we'd like, to be placed in environments where our performance is irrelevant. He starts to peel away at our desperate need for control, perhaps by taking away those things we cling to for control, even if we're not consciously aware of them, perhaps by allowing us to become powerless. So, who am I? I'm used to scrub. I'm still mostly dragon, but a small part boy. Aslan is peeling away at my scales, and in truth, it hurts like hell. His paws, if we allow him, do cut to the bedrock of our hearts. But there are moments, and hopefully more and more of them, where the pleasure of being descaled, of being undressed, of deconstructing in the best sense of the word, provides the foundation of genuine hope amidst the pain, anxiety, the tension of being stripped of our dark ideas, our corrupted desires, and our constant need for control. What strikes me about our story is that after Eustace has suffered for so long as a dragon with his bracelet mercilessly digging into his arm, he accepted the painful descaling without question. He simply laid down, surrendered, and allowed Aslan to cut into his heart. So yes, I'm used to scrub. And still, I'd like to become more and more like it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.